Um, but, uh, but tonight we come to 1 Timothy, which is a book about the church. Uh, Paul is not writing to a church per se, as he is writing to the young pastor of a church. So 1 Timothy holds a special place in my heart and has for a long time. One of the most exciting Olympic sports uh, in the track and field section of the Summer Olympic Games uh, that I actually enjoy watching because it's one of those sports that I would never be able to do is the, uh, the four-by relays, the four-by relays. That's uh, these relays where uh, you have to uh, run a certain distance and then you have the infamous baton pass, right? Uh, the baton pass where uh, one member has that little metal baton and they have to pass it in, in stride to the uh, members of, of, the, uh, of the other, of the, I mean, members of their same team who are running another section of the relay. Um, and so over the years, apparently America has had some of the fastest runners in the men's and women's four-by relays, but the reason that they didn't win gold is because they fumbled the baton. And I actually do remember watching some of those where it was a uh, it was it was heart wrenching because I mean these pe- they they're they're amazing and how they run and then that little baton makes all the difference in the world because if you drop the baton what happens you're out of the race all right and uh, and so the the baton even though it's small is of great importance. And as we come almost to the end of Paul's writings, we've looked at some of his longer letters and seen this baton of the gospel that he has sought to impart from church to church to church. He's tried to help them understand how uh, they can go and take that gospel baton and pass it from generation to generation to generation. For Rome, uh, they, would, they would hopefully take the gospel and share it to the ends of the known world and uh, Spain at the time. For Corinth, that they would see their lives and their relationships through the lens of the gospel. For Galatia, that they would not be deceived by false teachers, but would walk in the freedom and fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit. For the Thessalonians, that they would live in hope each day as they recognize that Jesus is coming back. For Ephesus and Colossae, that they would live with Christ at the center of their church and Christ at the center of their daily focus so that they could find unity and spiritual strength. And then this morning with the Christians in Philippi, that they would find joy and strength as, as they recognize the path of life that Christ had laid for them to walk on. And up to this point, we've only looked at one personal letter that Paul wrote, and that was to Philemon where he encouraged his brother to forgive and receive back Onesimus, right? Uh, to show the incredible example of how transformational Paul saw the gospel in, in, in relationships. And in the next three books that Paul has written, we go from seeing Paul writing um, letters from, from prison to churches, from writing letters from prison to people. And these next three books are affectionately known as the pastoral epistles, as Paul writes one letter, I mean, two letters to Timothy, who is a pastor, young pastor in Ephesus, and then writes a, past, uh, a letter to Titus, who is a pastor in Crete. And so as we begin tonight in 1 Timothy, uh, we're going to see Paul's desire for Timothy and Paul's desire for the church. And so tonight we'll have a great focus on leadership in the church and the kind of pastor that young Timothy was called to be. And so these three last three letters that Paul writes are known as the pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles, Titus and First and Second Timothy. And it's interesting to note that over the thousands of miles that Paul traveled, he never traveled alone. You think about from the first time on the Damascus Road, uh, uh, he was taken to the house of Ananias, right? And Ananias uh, stayed with him. 
And then Paul had that period where he walked with Jesus, and he was trained by Jesus. And then Paul, in Acts chapter 13, he was worshiping with Barnabas, right? And then he and Barnabas went on those missionary journeys. And even when Paul split from Barnabas over the issue of John Mark, Paul went with Silas, and he, over time, accumulated um, young young men who had uh, been saved through his preaching, and Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and Epaphras, and Luke, and Mark, after that relationship was restored, and so many others that we've mentioned as we've studied his letters. But Timothy is the one that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he calls my true child in the faith. I don't think it's far-fetched to say that Timothy held a very dear spot in his heart. In fact, so much so that when we talk about Old Testament relationships, we might mention David and Jonathan, and when we talk about New Testament brotherhood relationships, we talk about who? Paul and Timothy. We talk, it, it was funny, my, the first ever uh, young man that I mentored, and I don't, I don't really know if I'm still mentoring him, I think we're just friends now, but his name is Timothy, Tim Mathis, and I always jokingly say that he was my first Timothy. Uh, because he was one of the first young guys that I've discipled, and now he's in ministry for himself pastoring over there in West Alabama. And so Paul had seen this great fruit in relationships, and whenever he would go to these churches, these young men who had proved faithful, he would put them in leadership positions, and Timothy was that person for the church at Ephesus. And this church, uh, uh, this church played a central role even after Paul was gone. We actually know that the Apostle John was pastor at Ephesus for some 20 years before he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so Paul loves the church in Ephesus, and he leaves his, his true child in the faith there to shepherd the church in Ephesus. And he wants Timothy to know exactly what he needs to be doing while he's, while he's there. And so he writes this personal letter to him, helping him understand what his ministry in the church is supposed to look like. And then in the second letter, it gets even more intensely personal as Paul recognizes that he's coming close to death. And so let's open up and look at the message of 1 Timothy. And like I said, we're just going to go through uh, this this book chapter by chapter, and you're going to see the steps that Paul lays out for Timothy to build a fruitful and faithful ministry. And so step one is to fulfill your calling. Paul jumps into it almost immediately in verse three, that there are going to be false teachers in the church. Uh, hearing pastors talk about this past weekend, pastors who had been in churches for uh, up to 14 years, talk about uh, some of the things that were embraced in their churches when they arrived there. there. There's always a certain degree of correction that pastors must go in and be ready to confront. Uh, or, or pastors must be, be ready to go in and, and confront issues, to instruct in the right path. And even though Timothy was young, Paul told Timothy he needed to be ready to uh, confront these false teachers. Look at what they did. They, uh, they taught different doctrines, the end of, uh, end of verse 3. Uh, they devoted in the, themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Ideas have what? Consequences, right? You're like, oh my goodness, I'll be glad when we don't hear that anymore. You're not going to stop hearing it. Because it's so true. It's, it's replete all throughout Scripture. That's what Paul's saying right here. He's saying the false teachers come in, and since belief fuels behavior, truth fuels authentic faith, so falsehood fuels fake faith, right? If you are deceived in what you believe, then you won't walk in a manner according to godliness. And that's what, that's what Paul's aim is 
is here in 1 Timothy, is teaching Timothy about how to walk as a godly young man, a young pastor, a young leader in the church. And so Paul reminds Timothy about why he's in Ephesus to confront uh, these issues, to, to correct certain people, because look at verse 6, certain, certain persons by swerving uh, from these, from a good conscience and sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. People are basically just blindly spouting off things that they think are true without having measured them according to the Scriptures. And so Paul knows Timothy is instructed in the Scriptures, and so he needs to go in ready to confront these things. And so in verse 15... He reminds him of the foundation of his ministry, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The commentators say that this is almost one of those, uh, this is constructed in such a way where this must have been almost like something that was repeated often in the early church, that this is a trustworthy saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was a worship leader at heart. And he wanted his people to embrace truth, so he said it in ways that were memorable to them, much like we try to alliterate and do things as pastors uh, when we're preaching to you. And so Paul helped them understand that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that for Timothy, that was the foundation of his ministry. You never get away from preaching about Jesus, like we saw last week in the letter to Colossae. And if you want to know what goal you should aim at, Timothy, look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, by these promises made to, made to Timothy by God, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and, and a good conscience. Because if we reject these things, if, if we reject faith and a good conscience, we'll make shipwreck of, of our faith, just like Hymenaeus and Alexander have done. And look at, these, look at these words that Paul says, these, these extremely weighty words, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that may sound really harsh and, and almost demonic. What do you mean, hand them over to Satan? Basically what he's saying is, because ideas have consequences, because right belief fuels right behavior and wrong belief fuels wrong behavior, they believe the wrong things and they're so convinced that the wrong way is right that you just got to let them walk and experience the fruit of that, those wrong choices. Have you ever had an experience like that? That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's just saying, listen, you, you can't tell them anything, right? And so you're just going to have to let them experience the brokenness that comes from b- believing that, and then you've got to be there when they're broken. You've got to run into that brokenness so that you can show them the right way. So step one, fulfill your calling. Don't, don't lose focus on the calling that's been given to you, Timothy. Step two, pray, pray. Pray, 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 and lead in prayer. He says, first of all then, verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, all people means all people, but then he gets specific. All people, including kings and who, those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul recognized that it was beneficial for Timothy to pray for their leaders that they would know the truth, that they would come to know Jesus. Because if we have religious liberty, this is what Paul's talking about, if we have the freedom to share the gospel, if we have the freedom to worship, then that benefits us, and we are able to uh, do what God's called us to do freely. And a lot of what we enjoy now as Americans is rooted in verses just like this one. Just like this one. 
or we have prayed for our leaders and, our, and, and believers, uh, uh, Christ followers, have, have risen up into leadership in the government. And we pray for more people to rise up and go do that so that they can protect that wonderful right that we have here. But he wants them to pray for their salvation. And he wants them to pray for the salvation of everybody. Look at verse 3. This is good and it pleases, is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And what is the truth? That there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so you need to pray for your leaders. You need to pray for all people. You need to pray for their salvation. And then you need to lead men to pray rather than to fight. Look at verse 8. He knows that men are hotheads and and, uh, can get angry quickly. So he said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. But it's not just the men that Timothy needs to address, it's the women as well. And Paul spends this section, uh, verse 9 through the end of chapter 2, talking about um, the ways that Paul needs to correct women. Now, this is not, this is not universal to all the churches. Uh, the, the, the fact that Paul says that women should, I mean, that women should adorn themselves in respectable parable with modesty and self-control, that's, that's not a bad recommendation. But when he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Some of that's contextual. Some of it's universal, right? He's saying that there's an inward principle that should be driving men and women alike. Men, don't be hot-headed and angry. You need to focus on, 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 on waging war and fighting in prayer. Ladies, don't be flashy. Don't feel like whenever you show up at church, you've got to show off, uh, you know, what the Lord gave you, just to, be, just to be quite honest. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't feel like you have to adorn yourself uh, in all your finest jewels. The commentators think that there were ladies who were coming into church, and they were wearing all, these kinds, all this flashy jewelry, and what was happening was it was making people who were, uh, who were coming in, who were poor, feel like they didn't belong there. And it, listen, that still exists. One of the, one of the guys, uh, I think this was a, from a guy from Demopolis, he said that uh, one of his deacons heard that their church had a reputation in town that you couldn't go there unless you owned a suit. That's, I, I've heard that before. Not necessarily about this church, but about First Baptist Church in general. I asked a guy to, to come to church, not this church, another church uh, that I was uh, involved with one time. I said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come to church? He said, it's too expensive to come to church. I can't afford it. The reputation was that you had to have a, you know, a suit to go and to go to this church. So one of his deacons committed to wearing overalls, and he has for the past five years to church. And he said, what's funny is, is he said, they're in the choir loft, and there's a doctor in his camo, because he goes hunting in the morning, and he doesn't want to miss church, so he comes in his camo. And then there's another, uh, one of his deacons, and he is wearing a button-up shirt with his Liberty overalls, and he does every single Sunday, so that anytime anybody wants to get the misconception that you have to dress up to come to church, that he's there as a living example to defeat it. And I was like, that's, that's, that's amazing. But that's exactly what Paul's talking about. And he's like, some of these ladies are making people feel uncomfortable with the way that they're dressing, that they're, they're going, they're going uh, too stylish and, and too flashy. And so, listen, don't focus on that. Focus on being the woman that God wants you to be on the inside. Don't feel like you have to adorn yourself with all of these jewels on the outside, but focus on the good works on the inside. 
And these women were also boisterous. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's, that's one of those contextual verses. It's, Paul's not saying that a woman can never speak in church. He's saying that this, this kind of disorderly, I'm just going to say what I want, when I want, and nobody can tell me anything, that kind of spirit doesn't have a place in the church. And he goes in and he uses the example of Adam and Eve, and he, he's basically saying that, that, um, that it, ladies, if you want to make the greatest impact possible that you can make, disciple your kids. I can stand in a pulpit for years and not have the kind of impact that a mom can make through her kids. That's what he's saying. It's not one of those passages to get all up in arms about when you really understand what he's saying. He's saying, listen, your influence is greater than I could ever imagine if you'll just focus on the generational ministry that you have to raise up godly young boys and girls. That's what the whole saved through childbearing is. And so embody that faith and love and holiness and self-control. Lead women to focus on what matters. And then step three to building a fruitful and faithful ministry, appoint qualified leaders. Now, this is one of those sections that I'd love to challenge you in and just give you, give you a little nugget to take home. I think Southern Baptists have it wrong. I think when we look at this passage that we actually uh, call elders or pastors um, or the, the word overseers here, I think this refers to pastors, yes, but it also could broadly refer to elders. And in, in some denominations, they have teaching elders and they have ruling elders. They have elders who uh, everybody can teach, everybody's able to teach, but some are more gifted at administration and ruling, and some are more gifted at teaching and preaching and communicating the Word. And so that, that's the roles that they play. And then we have this ministry called deacon ministry, which is not solely uh, um, uh, limited to men. The overseers are limited to men only. But the, this deacon ministry, the servant ministry, should be open to men and women alike because it's not a ruling ministry. It's a, it's a ministry of service because that's what the word deacon translates to in the New Testament Greek is servant. I don't know why they, they translate overseer as overseer and then deacon as deacon because the word for overseer in Greek means to look over. The word for deacon in Greek means to serve. And so literally, it's overseers and servants. These are people that serve the body of Christ. And if you want a great example of a lady that Paul regarded as a great deacon in the church, look at Phoebe in the book of Romans. Phoebe was a diaconess, a deaconess in the church in Rome. And so this goes to show you that sometimes, even as Baptists, we kind of hold on to our, to our, our understanding of the way things have always been, when in reality, I think there are, there are so many places in our congregation, in our church family, that, can, that are open to female leadership that we haven't even tapped into yet. I think some of you ladies would be phenomenal out here as, as greeters on a Sunday morning, right? To give people a smile and face and hand them a bulletin. I don't know why we've, we've only viewed that as men. Ladies, if some of you want to step up and do that, I'd be amazed and blessed to, to have that happen. Uh, ladies who pray in public. Ladies, ladies who, who stand up and give testimony and teach and all of those kinds of things. That's not off limits. It just says in chapter 2 that they need to do it under the authority of the leadership of the local church. They're not lone rangers, right? They don't, they don't think that the way they view Scripture is right, and no pastor of the church can tell them that they're wrong. No, that's, that's, not, that's not a right attitude. 
But if they have a desire to teach and for people to understand the Word of God, listen, I pray that my, my daughters grow up, all four of them, to be able to communicate the truth with passion and to declare God's Word boldly. Do you have any idea how many wonderful, amazing female preachers there have been throughout history? And so this is one of those places where we're all like, oh my goodness, where are we going? You know, I feel so unbaptist right now. I'm Baptist unclean or something. We're talking about things that betray our faith. That's not, that's not the case. We're taking Scripture for what it says. And this is part of this series is to help us understand uh, and correct out some of the, some of the uh, misconceptions we have about these things that we've talked about or heard about for so many years. And so overseers or elders or pastors are only men, and they need to, be, they need to fulfill all these characteristics, not, not given to drinking, um, managing their own family well, men of integrity, able to teach, hospitable, uh, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome or a lover of money. And these deacons, they must also uh, be excellent, exemplary Christ followers. And the reason he's telling him all this is in verse 14 of chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so make no mistake that everything Paul's saying here is not just for the church at Ephesus. There are broad principles to apply to every single church, uh, just like he wrote in the letter to Ephesians. He wants Timothy to apply these things to the, to, the, to the church at Ephesus and any church that he's in because this is the way that churches should, uh, should be organized and should live. But then step four to a fruitful and faithful ministry. Chapter four, don't get complacent. He begins in chapter four by saying, others will swerve off into doctrinal or practical ditches, but there's a way that you can avoid doing that, and that is in verse seven. Train yourself for godliness. He says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Or some of you have, have memorized it. Discipline yourself for the purposes of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He's basically saying if you want to spend yourself to do anything that's going to bear you eternal fruit, he said, hey, follow after God. The disciplines that he's given us of prayer and fasting and Bible intake and scripture memory and evangelism and fellowship and all of these disciplines that a Christian should be pursuing, if you don't want to, if you don't want to swerve off into any doctrinal or practical ditches, if you want to walk in on the path of life as God's designed it, then you come into contact with truth, with truth, you pray the truth back to God, and then you dwell with believers in truth. And that accountability and that fellowship and that Bible study and that prayer will keep you on the path of life that God has for you. And don't think that just because you're young, Timothy, that you can't set the tone in this. In verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Don't forget the basics that I've given you. Devote yourself, verse 13, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And operate within your giftedness, verse 14 says, because leadership has consequences, Timothy. Practice these things, verse 15 Immerse yourself in them so that you may see, all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for so, by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, fulfill your calling. Pray, 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 and lead. Appoint qualified leaders. Don't get complacent. And step five, instruct the church. Instruct the church. Teach and instruct the church. 
And it's interesting the proportion here of how much time Paul spends on one specific area. The first two verses in chapter 5 are about how you deal with people who are older than you. Because remember, he's a younger man. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father in verse 1. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. But then in verse 3 through verse 16, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, he talks about widow ministry and talks about the right way to do widow ministry. And he defines what a widow is. And I think it shows us as he talks about these things how important this is for the local church. Uh, we, we, we have to be watching after those in our care who are widows. And he defines what a widow is. A widow is somebody who, who doesn't, doesn't have uh, doesn't have family that can take care of them, that he actually puts an age on it. Verse 9, he says, let a, let a widow be enrolled. That's one more reason I think Paul might have been a Baptist, right? And they had a role. Uh, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. And, I mean, he just goes on and gives all of these, uh, all of these uh, uh, admonitions for what this widow list should look like. And then in verse 11, he says, refuse to enroll younger widows. Because they're probably going to get married again. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busy bodies saying what they should not. I think it's funny to, to, to see how times haven't changed, right? <laughs> Even without Facebook, uh, some of these problems existed. But then in verse 17, he says that a church should take care of their pastors. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preacher or teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while, when it treads out the grain. And we're thinking, wow, Paul, so I'm an ox now. Okay, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. I asked my, my mentor about that one time, and he said that as the oxen were yoked in and they would be treading out the grain and there'd be grain on the ground, that it was foolish for the, the, the farmer who is driving those oxen to whip the oxen when he kneels down or, or puts his head down to just eat a little bit of the grain that they've been treading out, right? He's saying you, you pay your pastors so that they can be undivided, so that they can do ministry with a, with a singular heart for the church. And those pastors who preach and teach, those who shepherd well, should be taken care of. Let them be worthy, he says, of double honor because a laborer deserves his wages. And then take the accusations against pastors very, very seriously. Verse 19, don't admit a charge against an elder except in the evidence of two or three witnesses because sin, if it's really present, will always, always, always come out. And then practice church discipline when sin does arise. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And verse 24, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And so we need to practice church discipline as a church, one of those areas that we're very uncomfortable with, but is thoroughly a biblical concept. And then finally, the last step, uh, step six, watch out again for these false teachers. How do you know what a false teacher is? What do they look like? Well, chapter six tells us that for false teachers, it's never enough. Even if they're asking for a $24 million jet and they say they just want to believe God for it, they're not content. They've already, some, of the, some of these preachers and teachers on, on TV, uh, it's incredible to hear uh, Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis and Creflo Dollar and 
some of these other guys, and, and they, you know, I, I live in a mansion, and I've got a private jet, and I've got a, a, a fuel farm for my own private jet, and I've, I, I want to be able to have this new level of private jet so I can fly all over the world in one stop and not have to pay high, high fuel costs. And I can't fly commercial because, uh, you know, I'm basically going to preach in a tube full of demons. That's actually what one of them said, right? A tube filled with demons. <laughs> and so how do you know false teachers? Because... 1 Timothy chapter 6 says that they cause quarrels, they cause division with the false truths that they spread, and they're never, ever, ever content with what they've got. They always, always, always want more, more money, more money, more money. But verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is that, and that is exactly what happens through many of the teaching ministries of people on TV. Because the love of the money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so, Timothy, don't be like that. Stand out from them and encourage others to do the same. He says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And then verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation of the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then just hear the love that, that comes out of his heart. O oh, Timothy, verse 20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And he ends the letter with grace to you. So what's the message of First Timothy? Just to summarize message of First Timothy, and you could probably quote it for me, ideas have consequences. They have consequences for individuals. They have consequences for churches. And bad ideas don't just have bad consequences, as we've seen in First Timothy chapter 6. Bad ideas have victims. Ideas never just stay in your head. Uh, one, one person said this week that they always put on legs and walk out the door, right? You can't stop ideas from, uh, from going forth. If they're good ideas, they go forth and they bless the people around you. If they're bad ideas, if they're false truths, they go forward and they hurt people around you. Lead them into destruction and cause them to go into ruin and to value things that should not be valued in the Christian life. And so the only way to safeguard your individual and your corporate beliefs is to constantly be examining them in light of Scripture. Why do we come every single Sunday... And listen, when we have a morning and evening service, to an hour plus of teaching from God's Word. And why do we go to Sunday school and, teach and, and listen to God's Word? And why do we talk about the Bible over and over? Our kids memorize the Bible, and we have a memory verse every week. And we do all, Why? Why is Scripture so central? It's because that's the way that you know what God wants for your life. That's the way you know what God's thinking, and that's what, the way you know what God's priorities are, and God's heart is, and what God values. We're continually examining our beliefs, our behavior in light of Scripture, but this is not something that you do in a closet by yourself. Discipleship is a community project. Paul chose to invest in Timothy, 
and in others, and we need to choose to make ourselves vulnerable and get in relationships with people so that we can grow. And there, there are people, some people who just get this right, and our church has actually had the opportunity to be exposed to one of them who gets this so right, um, Fernando. Fernando uh, is uh, a young life missionary in the Dominican Republic, uh, Fernando Mejia. Fernando um, is uh, he's in a new place of ministry, but when he was in Santo Domingo, he took his leaders on, uh, or he took uh, a retreat, and these leaders that were on the retreat with them, at any moment in time, they were to have ready and available a leadership tree or a ministry tree. And, and if, if, I could, if I could wish for anything of, of us, especially the leaders of First Baptist Church, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a, uh, if, if you're a, a, a deacon, if you're, if you're a, a deacon wife, I would love for you to think about who would be on your ministry tree. And here's what a ministry tree is. A ministry tree was uh, you would you put yourself at the top, and then you draw three lines. And on those three lines are the three people that you're investing in. But it doesn't stop there. Because within a very short amount of time of you beginning to invest in that person, they pick three people and invest in those three people. And so what Fernando was doing on this leadership retreat, at any moment in time, they would have to be accountable for their leadership tree. And they would not only have to list out the names of the three people they were investing in, but the three people that those three people were investing in. So how many is that? Four, three, what's that, 13, 14 people, right? Uh, and then on and on and on. He said some people, Fernando said that some of these, some of these folks, listen, they're dirt poor. They don't have all the, they might have a cell phone, but they don't have all the technology that we have. They, 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 don't, they don't own vehicles, they don't own homes, and yet their pages are filled with names. What does that represent? That represents spiritual wealth, my friends. Listen, we can flip out our bank account and our wallets with all of our credit cards, but it's, according to 1 Timothy, that's actually more trouble than it's worth. But if you can make out that sheet with the people that you're investing in and then the people that they're investing in and the people that those people are investing in, what, is that, what does that equal? Legacy. That's stewardship. That's prosperity. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of people, that's the kingdom of God. And Timothy, you need to be that kind of person. And people attending worship service on November 11th, 2018 at First Baptist Church, that's the kind of people that we need to be as well. And so the question I want to ask you tonight, just in conclusion, is who are you investing in? Who are you helping watch what they believe? Who are you challenging to walk in the truth? For you who are parents and you still have kids living in your home, absolutely, that's who you're investing in. That's who you're investing in. And that, until they walk out your door, that's where your focus needs to be. You may have a couple of others on the side, but can I tell you, as a former youth pastor and as a pastor now, if you will devote yourselves to them, then I promise you 
that this church and the kingdom of God will flourish because of, the, of that investment that you made in those kids over the years. Not, not just to bring them to church, but to pour into them spiritually and to help them watch what they believe and know what they believe and to challenge them to walk in the truth. In fact, I would, I would encourage you to go to our church Facebook page and to look at the cover photo on there. And it talks about the, the greatest gift that a church can give is families who have devoted themselves to raising up godly children. It's the greatest gift that, that a family can give the church and that the church can give the world is <laughs> a number of families who are devoted to raising up godly children. And so who are you investing in? But then I would ask you, who's above you in your tree? Who's investing in you? I'm, I'm such and such age, Ryan. Nobody's investing in me. You need to pray for somebody to invest in you. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe I'm the one investing in you, but maybe it needs to be a little bit more personal than that. I pray that you can have somebody, even an accountability partner, who would invest in you, that, that you, could, you could have their correction, you could have their prayers, you could have their encouragement, and you can have those little text messages that come when you really need them most, or those little verses of Scripture of people trying to encourage you. You see, if First Timothy is about anything, it's about the church. But the church is made up of people living in relationship with one another. And you remember what we saw last week, broken people in, in broken, relation, uh, broken relationships with broken people who are being made whole is a perfect showcase for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God's trying to do. And Paul and Timothy have proven to be a wonderful example of two broken people who are being made whole by Jesus. They're pursuing the same cause, and they're making a great impact. May God make us the kind of church that is filled with people like that.